Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to another mini-sode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and here with me is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello! We're pulling double duty on the show for this one, as we are not only covering our September donor pick, AI, apologies for being late, but we also have the pleasure of talking with author and fellow sci-fi enthusiast, Mark O'Connell. Mark, welcome to the show. Hello, guys. Hello. Thank you for getting me along. Mark's recently released his second book titled Watching Skies, Star Wars, Spielberg and Us. That's a lot of S's there. And we are excited to have an opportunity to talk to him about it. But first up, let's get to the Spielberg sci-fi film selected by you, our patrons, which if you're not a patron, you can definitely be a part of that. And by choosing our film each month by donating as little as a dollar a month. And if you want more info about that, just uh, check us out at patreon.com slash film. With that being said, this is our obligatory spoiler alert. We will be talking in depth about the movie. So if you haven't seen it and want to and want to be a part of the conversation, then go ahead and check that out and come back and enjoy. As we always like to do, we will open up with our one word takeaways. And Mark, let's begin with you. What is the one word that you pulled from AI that you think could sum up your overall movie experience? Uh, fairy tale. Okay. Yep. No, Why no. is that? Uh, well, the whole, the whole film, the film starts with visual references to Alice in Wonderland and, uh, obviously Pinocchio is a key, uh, sort of trait and spine to the story. But, um, there was a great, another word I was toying with using was the word serene because it's a really beautifully still, serene, uh, calm film. That's another word, calm. Um, and I, I, I was surprised how, how, there's not too many Spielberg bells, whistles and fireworks. It's a very sedate movie. So so it did feel like a, a calm bedtime story, like a fairy tale. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Aaron, Aaron, what about you? I, I completely agree with Mark about the serenity of it. And I was actually thinking originally of a word that was similar to that. Because you're right, there is like no Spielberg in here, except that one helicopter sequence in the middle, which is really weird. It's mm. just like, oh my God, there's action. But mm. um, my word that I decided on was convincing. And mm. the reason for that is that I think that the first act of AI is really just among the greatest pieces of filmmaking that I've ever seen. So it's that first 45 minutes where we meet David and he comes into existence. The setup here makes perfect sense to me. Um, We're put into this really believable falling apart world. And then the moral questions that lead to the creation of David, to me, that's what science fiction is awesome about. Like that's when it's at its best and fueled by these heavy questions with unknown and deep implications. Um, it's all out of this driven desire, both for invention and then also for the creation of a service, to, uh, the idea to create some sort of service that you need in your life. So, you know, the fact that throughout two thirds of this film, I cared more about David and Joe than most of the humans mm. <laughs> told me that, uh, that it had done a pretty fantastic job emotionally of selling me on Spielberg's take on the question of what does it mean to be human? And I'm convinced that this world could exist in the not so distant future. And that honestly, like Monica, I would likely be able or be glad to take on a replacement child if it meant healing from the loss of my own biological kids. 
it's just a really fascinating world and it's a, a very moving story and I, I love it. Mm. Mm, that's great. I like that. I, I chose desire and I think because it seems like an under, maybe not underwhelming, but at least a kind of a subterranean theme that I picked up on. This is actually my first time watching AI. So surprise, surprise. But I noticed the innate desires of each character that we're introduced to and why asking the question of why it is that they want what they want, mm. either because they're programmed to or because they are are grieving the loss or the temporal loss of a loved one. And I was trying to get my head around Spielberg and Kubrick, knowing that this was not a co-production, but maybe a, a vision giving type film. Mm. It was really, from what I understand, it was Spielberg's at, at his, at Kubrick's wife's request that Spielberg fulfilled this project. And I feel like the desires of Kubrick and Spielberg both exist in a really well-told story mm. that we definitely see elements of Kubrick. We see elements of Spielberg and there are a lot of times when these things really mesh well, because they're, you're talking about two different filmmaking styles, two different filmmaking approaches. And I think the desire of Kubrick really came out in Spielberg's telling of this story through his own ambitions and whatnot. So I feel like the characters are dealing with their own desires and as well as the creators of this, of this narrative are doing so as well. Mm. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I overassumed or I underassumed what was the Spielberg DNA of this film and what was the Kubrick DNA of this film. You sort of assume the, the sentiment and the warm domesticity is uh, is naturally Spielberg's. And when doing a little bit of reading around the sides, I, I couldn't have been more wrong. In fact, the the slightly cold, vicious beats of the film, the flesh fairs and the the uh david being pulled away from monica and, and the family and everything he's used to that they're, they're spielberg's ideas it was the the sort of the opening and the end were, were more assigned to kubrick and how he saw it padded out um i i always think of ai it's it's got spielberg's key trait of childhood but he it it weaves it with kubrick's fascination with the effects of technology and society's inevitable blurring of the lines between technology um, I, and I think it looks at the tragedy that is childhood as well. Whenever Spielberg looks at childhood, you know, E.T. particularly, I always think E.T. is about the end of childhood. That film ends with Elliot looking at the skies and realising childhood is over. It is at the next stage. And I think AI does that as well. It's like a, it's Kubrick does Spielberg does the end of childhood. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic analogy. And so to kind of kick off our conversation, I wanted to kind of ask you, because you you seem to be very candid on social media, at least about or at least with us about wanting to cover this. I know that yeah. with with all that. And I wanted to ask for you, what is it about AI that makes it so appealing? Um, For me, I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I feel it's I'm, I'm talking about myself here, I suppose, to begin with. That I, I feel AI is one of those overlooked Spielberg films. Yes, it will get mentioned in the montages and the. You know, it's it's still in there. The family photo to the left side, you know, behind bigger, bigger names like Jaws and E.T. But I just think it it just gets forgotten. And when I did uh, watching Skies, my book, I was conscious of it. And there was there was perhaps less of a natural place for A.I. in that book. And I, f I felt a bit guilty for that. Um, so when you guys presented uh, a list of Spielberg films that you're going to put out to your 
to your audience and the uh, the donors, I was I was really keen to see AI in there, and I I thought great, and and I didn't expect it to sort of get picked. I, I assumed it might be War of the Worlds or one of the others. Um, so I was just glad for, for yeah, I was just glad to be able to go back to it, and um, I've watched it over the last couple of nights, and it was an utter joy because often when you go back to a movie that you know and you you loved at the time. So was it, you're a bit tentative about going back and seeing was it still good? And it was it was a beautiful piece of work. It was that you know that the opening act, the last act. It was it was top cinema, and I I know why I overlook it as well because it it came out in Britain a week after nine eleven, and I think that slightly you know everyone media and everyone had their attentions elsewhere. And I remember listening to the score because I bought the CD and was listening to it over and over. And to me actually that John Williams AI score became the score to uh, 9-11, but, you know, in a sort of strange way. And there's worse sort of uh, composers who can um, add their sort of sound to that very real time. You know, I know AI was is a fantasy and 9-11 very much wasn't so. So, yeah, I just felt it. I was just keen to see it because I just felt it had been slightly missed and overlooked. Yeah. Having never seen it, before then, I don't know if it was because of 9-11 or maybe it just didn't pop up on my radar. But I, I think that I remember if I look back at my like love or like of Spielberg, his early 80s stuff was really what I latched on to. Mm, and here. I think that he sort of fell off the radar for me in the early part of the 2000s because he was still making films, but they weren't necessarily appealing to me. I remember specifically falling in love with the with the poster, I love the mm. the art style of using the typography of showing, you know, the A and the I mm. and seeing seeing that. But that was about the extent of it. I, I didn't really have a lot of interest in it. And I wondered why, because I like sci-fi. But I think as I've grown up, as I've and Aaron and I've kind of talked through elements of sci-fi that we've liked and talked about on the show, that type of cerebral sci-fi that asks those questions, what does it mean to be human? I think get they get explored in a lot of ways, and there's a number of different sci-fi movies that are out there that do that. But I feel like, like you, Mark, I feel like this one sort of gets slighted because maybe it was ahead of its time, or maybe it was at a point in our culture where we didn't really want to ask that question. We mm. weren't asking that question. It was just kind of like, hey, this isn't this isn't really what the audience is is wanting right now. So mm. I th maybe that maybe that did gave it some kind of, um, I don't know, negative aspect of it. Well, there was two types. Sorry, no, there was, there was two, you know, until that point, there was often two types of Spielberg-directed movies. It was the big concept, E.T., Close Encounters, Jurassic Park, or the more adult-minded uh, films like Empire of the Sun, Color Purple, always to a degree, and Saving Private Ryan. And then suddenly AI comes along and it straddles both camps. It's It's a... It's a sci-fi, I wouldn't say blockbuster, it's a big sci-fi odyssey, but also, like you say, touching into those sort of humanitarian uh, examinations of the human spirit and, you know, where we are and where we will be. Uh, so, you know, that, maybe that it was the first, first film to do that that he did. And also, I think 2000, 2001 was a, a strange time. I, I'm just talking personally, that's all I can do. But it, it felt like, you know... Often a decade doesn't always kick in until perhaps three, four years in, you know, into it. And I felt that the new millennium had it was a sort of odd incubation time. So for any film that comes out, I 
it's a time where I don't remember cinema, if that makes sense. Uh, I don't, I, but as soon as sort of 2001, two, three come, um, I, I can plot out my life and my memories through cinema as I always do. You know, for me, I think this was so overshadowed because of Lord of the Rings primarily because yes. it, it competed with fellowship head on and that just trumped everything in mm. my mind for those, for that three year period. I don't remember much in that three year period anywhere as much as I do Lord of the Rings. And one thing that I noted was when I was looking up, you know, what, what awards did this win and what did it get nominated for? Cause I was kind of shocked that there weren't as many as I was expecting. It was because Lord of the Rings was dominating everything. I mean, mm. this, feel, this felt like a surefire, uh, visual effects winner. And yet, of course, it couldn't because Lord of the Rings. Mm. Otherwise, any other year, this is winning an Oscar for those. Um, and then, uh, the other thing is that this sort of kicked off like a interesting set of films for Spielberg where he went mm. and, and explored more of that darker side of, of his filmmaking. Because after this, he does Minority Report and War of the Worlds, which are considerably different tonally mm. Mm. than that early 80s stuff. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I, um, it's, 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 the tone is an, an interesting one. Cause I think it's actually oddly, it's Spielberg's most restrained, simple, quietest of movies. Even the photography is, is not flashy and showy. And we, we've got the, the amphibia co uh, copter. And yes, like you say, there's the sort of helicopter scenes and they feel a bit more action scene orientated, but it's a, it's not a flashy blockbuster. And maybe that's why it just didn't have a natural, place you know in the movie calendar or at the time with movie audiences yeah and i look at the, the the two distinct tones of this movie and mark like you i sort of assumed which parts were kubrick and which parts were spielberg and to find out that they were in some ways opposite of one mm. another mm. where you would expect spielberg to be more of one way and kubrick to be more of another and that was not the case nonetheless there were these drastically different tones throughout mm. the movie. Do you think, and did they, did those work for you? Did you feel like they accented the, the narrative? Do you feel like you felt like you were watching two different stories or how did you, how did you respond to that? I, it's a very interesting one because there's probably not many other films that do that as well, where yes, a film will be developed and nurtured by one director and perhaps a friend or an associate will take it on that. That's not new to cinema, but, for two masters of 20th century cinema to sort of hold both ends of the skipping rope of this movie, you know, and what happens in between is a mix of both ends and both energies. Um, I, I, I find, you know, I, I really like the coldness of the film. It's a very cold, austere film. It's very, the emotions are very distant. Um, it's emotions are, uh, are sort of activated and, you know, literally David has to have his emotions clicked on, which feels very, feels more of a Kubrick nod in terms of Hal and 2001 and even perhaps uh, uh, Clockwork Orange. Um, and then you've got the, 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 the opposite of that is the, the flesh fairs and the, to me, I was, I found the flesh fears. I forgot how vicious those scenes are, how horrible they are. And there's a sort of slightly current day rallying fever about them that I won't say what it reminded me of, but it, I think for Spielberg, all those flesh fair scenes and the, the hunting down of, of the mechas and the, the, the robots and the droids, it, it just felt like his, you know, another Holocaust film 
or perhaps another chapter in looking at how humans can just do that to other people or in this case other you know other sentience or robots whatever we're going to call them right on it it's it's scary knowing that in the world of sci-fi you're making symbolic gestures mm. and to be that close using at that point in the film where you have a question mark as the audience of going how do i reconcile caring for this robot who mm. is a child but who's a robot mm. and the flesh fairs i think challenge us as an audience to question that because mm. we could live on either side of that mm. at this point in the movie. we mm. could be in the we could be in the crowd getting ready to throw what looked like bean bags <laughs> at somebody or mm. we could be like that woman saying that's not right yeah he's just a child yeah and and i think that's very effective and I, those two tones for me, I think, worked well mm. enough to merit, I think, a second viewing to kind mm. of appreciate the overall narrative. Mm. But it's interesting if we were to say, if we were to describe this in another word, you could call it either pure because mm. of the softness, because of the gentleness of all that. But you could also call it sterile because of the fact that everything is very cold. There's a lot of white. There's a lot of just very clean, almost Macintosh, uh, Apple... Mm -hmm. inspired type of visuals and to be to be able to describe it with those two words they're all they're not opposites but they evoke a different kind of emotional response to the movie mm -hmm. it either feels very cold at times or it feels very warm depending on the scenes and what i find pretty ironic is that the cold scenes are the ones on the human side and the mm -hmm. warmer scenes are the ones evoked by at least david i mean i won't say that for every every uh every robot but at least for david by the end of the movie i feel like he's evoking that more human quality that we aspire to as opposed to uh the folks that are actual humans yes like the parents monica and i think it's henry have these almost sort of pharmaceutical emotions where you know or they're mm -hmm. afraid of showing them and then when we cut to the flesh fair scenes where all these these robots and the different mechas are meeting each other there's instantly a camaraderie where when they're in the cage they're they're literally all holding hands and trying to help each other and be kind yes you're right that the the, the warmth and humanity and i'm sure and i'm sure this wasn't accidental the humanity of the story comes through the comes through the mechas comes through the robots and not not the humans because you know w william hurt is decidedly alien in that film with his emotions and, and likewise the parent exactly two of the two of the moments that i that I really latched onto were actually this, it's the same, the same position, but one is by uh, Gigolo Joe, who was played by the phenomenal Jude Law. I thought he was mm. fantastic in this, but the other one, and I can't remember specifically if, if this is what happens, but at least in that instance with Jude Law, the way in which he is holding David while they're being strapped, while they're strapped to the, the mechanism that's going to basically melt them, the way he mm. has his arms around him, it's almost like a father to his son. Like I've, I've had that, I've held that, held my son with that kind of position. Mm. And there's something about being protective and something about, that's a very human quality, something that uh, you don't yeah. particularly and get. A, and a classic Spielberg one of the absent father, in this case being William Hurt. He's the absent father that's let his, his ro robot son duplicate has left him alone to sort of literally fend for himself. 
Yeah, and it's also a, a cool uh, comparison shot, in my opinion, to when David grabs Martin and pulls him into the pool accidentally because he's latching onto Martin from behind. He's got his arms wrapped around Martin. So, mm-hmm. and that's probably my favorite scene in the film, um, the way that that shot ends. And so, when I saw the Jude Law, you know, having his arms around him, it just it evoked that memory of mm. David trying to use Martin as protection from behind and it going poorly. And now here someone is behind him protecting him. Um, and it's a much different, you know, the, the result is, is completely different and the tone is completely different. And it's, it's a pleasant thing. It, it's a comforting thing for him versus a, a manner of fear. Um, mm-hmm. and so I thought that that had to be intentional personally, but. Yeah. I mean, there's echoes of Michael, the older brother in ET. I don't, I don't see Jude Law as a father figure. He's, his Lothario bot is too sort of he's too plugged into satisfying people's carnal desires to to you know to be the father figure, but he's like the cool brother I find. But that's that's what I got from that one. Yeah, I could see that. In any way it's a protective mechanism. And he even says himself, he said, You've you've saved me. You know, yes. he was the I, I think at some point he was quite literally latched on to David, and it was because of that latching on that he was able to be saved. So I, mm. I can, I can definitely see the, the older brother analogy there. Mm. And it's well, the one ju- of the things about, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying that I, one of the, I think the defining shots of, of AI for me involves Jude Law and Gigolo, Gigolo Joe. And it's almost, it's, it's at the end of the film where um, David is sat atop the skyscraper and just chooses to drop into the water. And you see Jude Law uh, looking down through the helicopter uh, windscreen and the, Date, the falling shot of David becomes a tear just falling down his face. And I, I, you know, that's, that's two masters at work, plus Janusz Kaminski and the, the CGI guys. That, that's a beautiful beat of that film. Absolutely. So some of the great sci-fi movies, I say it's great, it's all subjective, but the movies that I enjoy personally are ones that start out with a central conflict. Like this is why the world is what it is currently. Mm. Children of Men is a great example of setting up mm. really rules and, and, and boundaries of the world that the director and the creative team are, are creating for us. And this, this movie is no different. It opens up with the narrator stating that because of depleting natural resources, human reproduction has been placed under strict control and only licensed couples could have kids. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine that. So already we're kind of getting a convincing worldview that it's quite frankly it's a lot like china where there is a limit to the number of kids you can have to rectify population control but i'm wondering for us as human beings living outside of the movie world how bad would things need to get before something like this would have to be implemented Ooh, um well you know if you there are echoes of that's you know sort of reproduction engineering you know you could assign that to anything we have now including certain uh politicians suggesting overturning uh long-held rulings that protect women's uh choices and their own bodies and their own reproduction uh choices um so you could say that now i think yeah we'd have to be in a pretty dire state to start licensing couples but then that we we've probably got echoes of that already you know getting married as a license to then have children. And that's one of the oldest uh, sort of 
civic things any of us can do or if ch- or choose to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think Aaron? I think we're a lot closer than we would want to admit, which is part of what I mentioned about why I find this so compelling is because mm. it's believable. Um, mm. Like you said, Mark, you know, you can look at the difference in political leadership in the states specifically for us mm. in the last eight years. And I mean, it's it's such a completely changing. It, it is such a fast changing world um, mm. where something that is completely taboo and absolutely not spoken about or publicly uh, approved of can become much closer to the norm within a matter of 10 years or so. Um, so, mm. you know, you fast forward another hundred years. I mean, look at where we've come in the matter of slavery. I mean, mm. these things have just now becoming a hundred years old uh, at mm. this point. So a hundred years from now, we could seriously be in a different position, especially with overcrowding and things of that nature. So um, it was, it was scary to me. I think that ideas that have been proposed uh, over time, like barcodes for registering folks and, and things of that nature, those are all little steps that could easily lead to a scenario where suddenly we do start licensing parents and licensing uh, the birth of children. So, um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think we're, I don't think that it would take a world event, I guess would be my answer to that question, Patrick. I don't think, I don't think that we need necessarily some major huge tragedy to trigger it. I think that Mm. it's the baby steps that we're actually of the path that we're currently on. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. I I look at, there's a a book series by Neil Shesterman that starts with Unwind. And it explores that same idea of this controlled population that's driven by purpose. Mm. And that's not necessarily explored in depth in AI, but I think it finds its roots in it in that you're, you're not, you're ultimately asking the question, why, why do we license, why are we licensing parents? Why is there now a limited thing? Well, the question's answered obviously in that opening voiceover, but the repercussions of that are driven by the conversation a scene later where as human beings, we need to have the capacity to both give and receive love and not having children takes away a fundamental avenue to express that love, which I think is what drives the opening narrative by creating children. Mm. Now it definitely satisfies the problem of, of food shortages and whatnot because kids don't eat. But I think we're meant to feel a little uncomfortable at the dinner table when David is just staring at his would-be parents, mimicking what they're doing, and then occasionally letting out a almost horrific laughter that mm. scared me when I was Terrifying. Mm. Terrifying. Mm. Worse than horror movie. That scene scars <laughs> me. And I can't eat spinach, seriously, since 2001. I cannot eat spinach. <laughs> With or piling, and I'm not a big spinach fan. I, yeah, I, I have problems with it at the best of times, but I always, always think, what if I have that sort of mecca, you know, balls, uh, bells palsy moment and my whole face sinks and they have to pull out the spinach? I seriously, every time I eat spinach, I think of that point. Yeah, because, and the film is, <laughs> the film is flecked with little moments like that. Like, um, even I... D- David, uh, in, 
doing the hide and seek and not quite understanding that you don't walk in on someone uh, in the in the bathroom. Um, it's <laughs> it's got those little creepy beats, uh, and yeah, that scene where he just laughs is, and I would attribute it to Haley Joel Osment who puts in a really really great clever uh, performance in that film. It's a it's. I mean, Spielberg's the master of getting good performances from good kids, but that is one of the best sort of screen performances mm-hmm. of a kid this century, at least. Well, well you can just stick to uh, Tower of Potatoes instead of Spinach, Mark. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can eat potatoes. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Even if there's a fly in my... <laughs> even though this means something. This is yes. important, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I want someone to mash up, actually, all the Spielberg dinners, dinner scenes like the one in Jaws and there's scope to do that um one day maybe I would love to see someone like a like a comic book artist put a big mosaic together of like this whole kind of like a last supper mm-hmm. but like the dinner table itself is what's on display and you have maybe Spielberg and some of his cast sitting around the table with all these different meals from his movies you, you know yeah, who's follow- good at graphics and 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 media is is Adam Adam Rakoff the the, the man who got okay. set us up yes. we, we should put yeah. this on Adam for not being present today this is Adam's assignment his to uh to give us a mashup of all the Spielberg dinner scenes Including a Homework. bowl of we'll bad dates from Raiders as well. I'm beginning on some <laughs> yes, yes. I'm s- I love it. I love and, it. And a penis, <laughs> penis breath pizza as well. If that, yeah, the ET fans will get what I mean. That sounds like a horrific order from uh, Domino's, but yeah, <laughs> um, it's so good. Well, one of the things that that I pulled out was at the beginning, Professor Hobby. He makes this. He says this quote. He says, "To create an artificial being has been the dream of man." since the birth of science. And I think there's some truth to this. I think the fact that we are fascinated, at least as an audience, with the exploration of artificial intelligence, Mm. that we want to see what's out there, I think it's expressed hit or miss in a lot of movies. But I know Mm. that that's an attractive theme for me when I I look at sci-fi outside of, you know, it's even more so than, you know, aliens and whatever. Time travel would probably trump it by just a little bit. But I wonder, as human beings, as people, uh, why do we have this kind of fascination? Well, I think we're we're designed to to reproduce, to recreate, but that doesn't always have to be through the more traditional biological man and woman uh, uh, ingredients. You know, we I'm sure uh, sort of sociologists and psychologists can look back at some of the cave paintings. Uh, you know, in France and in, in, you know Arizona and all the earliest depictions of man to see there will have been, you know, if you look at the Egyptians and the early Aztecs, there's, there's, these aren't just sculptures um, uh, underlining their, their deity and their religions and their gods. It's that it's them try, just trying to recreate resemblances of themselves. I'm sure as, you know, as the first Neanderthal or whoever it was that looked in a, a pool of water and saw a reflection. It's, it's, it is an interesting realm of thought. I will give you that. I, I don't, I'm not fully sure uh, why it is, but it's probably, but I, I think it's like, the, it's, it's just linked to our need to reproduce, to, to communicate, to uh, socialize, to sort of protect ourselves as well. You know, I, I think it has something to do with control as well. I mm. think we mm-hmm. live lives that are largely out of control, that whether you're religious uh, of like Patrick and I are and believe in an afterlife and then mm. that something else is controlling us or whether you're an atheist and you believe that there is no control to what is happening either way. It's not really something that we can 
dictate <laughs> what is going to happen to us uh, in the end. And so I think creating something allows you to do that for something else or someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think there's an element of that to that desire to, to just feel like you're in control as well. In addition to what you said, Mark, I think everything you said was spot on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would add to that by saying there's definitely a Socratic reasoning, I think behind why we, we, we like the idea of progression. I mean, the fact is, I was recently watching a documentary about the the evolution of the the tech industry, particularly with Apple and Microsoft and mm. how that all came to be. And it's all driven by this desire to not just be the first to get somewhere, but to be the best at that thing and mm. to create something brand new. But I also think that we're always asking, especially when it comes to things like artificial intelligence, we're asking ourselves questions. Why are we here? What is our purpose? And maybe there's a small bit of us that feel like the expression of that lives in these computers, lives in these robots, these sentient beings that we feel like, hey, if, I, if I'm less distracted by these tasks and I can give them to a robot that has no feelings, then maybe I can explore more about the philosophical me because I can take away those annoyances, those daily grind type things that I don't have to think about, but that take up a good chunk of my day. Maybe mm. I can create a, a robot that can do all the things that I don't need to do. And I can spend more time with my kids or I can spend more time being creative. Um, we're getting closer to that. And mm. obviously film and, and television are expressing that in ways of like, what if with black mirror and humans mm. and things like that. But I think it comes down to a little bit of selfishness on our part, ironically, in that we are trying to get to maybe the best place of who we are as human beings. And maybe those mundacities, those things that we think are really kind of just bland and boring and don't really matter, we can dish those off to creatures that don't have feelings. They don't have emotion. So it's okay for us to create a sort of non-biological slavery in that regard yeah and it's and it's also such a human trait to assume that if we create mechas if we create davids in a sort of ai type future world that they have to have emotions and that they're incomplete if they don't have emotions that's such a human sort of dare i say arrogance that you know why why do we have we can create uh, machines that don't need emotions we we have vacuum cleaners we have toasters we have shower units they don't they don't have to live breathe cry and romance um and so it's like all science fiction it's like all technology it's it's yes it, it comes from uh, a human source a human inventor and creator but it, it is so entwined with human foibles frailties and dare i say arrogances Absolutely. I think Battlestar Galactica, the reimagined series that came out on sci-fi back in the early 2000s, about the yeah. same time as, as this movie, really, really goes into heavy hitting when it comes to not just understanding what it means to be human, but the idea of how a group of beings, humans or Cylons, mm. react to each other when you have almost no visual difference between the two. Mm -hmm. I mean, that became an underlying theme of 
well, this person's a Cylon. I don't know if this person's a Cylon. Or if you find out a person's a Cylon, do you look at them differently? So there's definitely a lot of like prejudices and racism and things like that that exist in that. Mm-hmm. But that definitely exists in AI. And there's a great moment at the flesh fair yeah. when the owner starts describing David and he says that, yeah, he was built to disarm our the humans by playing on these human emotions. Mm-hmm. But the human spectators themselves, they actually feel sympathy for David. That lady says, you know, he's, but he's just a kid. Mm. And then it, it asks the question, it raises the question, at what point do you give value? At what point, what abilities would a robot have to exhibit before we actually consider it maybe equal with humans or having the same value that we do human beings? But I often think, well, why would we limit a, a robot or a mecha's uh, purpose by assuming and assigning too many human traits? Um, I, I, that's one thing I always wonder about. Yeah, you know, I, it, there's there's such a hypocrisy to that scene. Uh, it almost overshadows everything for me, just because. Again, realistic. I, I love that exploration of this is what I feel like humans would actually do. Um, mm. We we have that moment where. You know, they are now hunting these things down and it's it's become an event and a sport because we'll make a sport and a, and a game and entertainment out of anything mm. in, in our culture. Mm. And so when the crowd starts to turn on them, all of a sudden it's it's a bit it's a bit sudden and jarring, um, mm. but it's it's got this very hypocritical feel to it, in my opinion, where it's all a matter of like, clearly it's about the look. Um, everybody else is a robot as well, but we're going to devalue them because of their skin color or their gender or whatever the case may be. But it's, it's, you don't look like me and therefore I don't give you as much, I don't assign as much value to you. And yeah, that's a real, it was scary. Sorry. That was what was scary yeah. about it for me. There's a real sort of immigrant fear of others in the film where we can, we can hate mechas and we'll tear them apart for entertainment but we'll still use them as nannies and bus drivers and surrogate children. And, and, you know, that's, that has echoes of all sorts of things in the 20th century. And even sadly in 2018, I feel, I feel. Yeah. The thing that I find interesting about that moment is I was trying to, I was trying to switch out David and put an adult Mecca in there which obviously Jude Law represents that, but there's something about him visually that he doesn't articulate emotion. He articulates arrogance and a sense of the Fred Astaire Broadway type guy. Mm. Again, that's one of the characteristics I liked about him was that he was so flamboyant. Mm. But I think there's something to be said about the child version of a Mecca and that you combine that with the emotional response that he gives the crying and the screaming Mm. and that's different than the first act where before he's turned on or switched to love you love me mode whatever you call that Mm. he puts himself in a position where he looks creepy i mean and Mm. that's what we've talked about that that the first act of the film he's just walking around kind of like a kind of like a just like a robot it's only when he gets that emotional trigger in that moment at the flesh fair that we start feeling like he's a human being. And I think not just the emotional part, but the fact that he's a child, I think really, really calls into question how we treat him. No, you're right. It's that 
yeah, because they, they they try and defend the the guy in the uh, the control booth is concerned that why is a kid in here and uh, he's not he's not plugged into human emotions or sorry adult emotions um, and that's when I yeah when I first noticed in the film there is this sort of they're trying to make a divide between childlike emotions and childlike logic and adult and I think perhaps the overall one of the overall things is there isn't a difference uh, Spielberg particularly as a filmmaker that doesn't doesn't have demarcations there he he you know he'll find childlike wonder in you know Richard Dreyfus is a child in Close Encounters yeah absolutely I think that's a very Spielbergian trait is mm. childlikeness yes not necessarily that it's motivated by kids although that's definitely a nice motivator and a nice reinforcement but I think that brings us back to a place of innocence mm. when it comes to a lot of his movies like even Jurassic Park one of the best moments for me in that in that movie is when they get to the island mm. and grant looks up and he sees the brachiosauruses and he, mm. the pan shot and he goes they do move in herds mm. and mm -hmm. that yeah. awe and wonder that comes from like not just we're seeing live dinosaurs but oh my gosh my my dream has been realized of actually seeing these these creatures and validating what we know about them just from history and archaeology so it's mm. it's pretty fantastic yeah yeah spielberg's a great master at mixing uh you know what we what we should be fearful of he lets us know particularly through john williams as well like when david first comes into ai it is a bit sinister you know Haley john osmond is you know walking around very sort of mecca like and it's a little creepy but then john williams and his beautiful sort of pianos let us know it's all right it's okay at the same time the mother realizes it's all right and it's okay yep. for sure for sure I, I think john williams in particular in this movie it reminded me a lot of his his themes in hook mm. where you had dramatic shifts and then you had small little piano scores here and there to kind of accent intimate moments that yeah, the characters are yeah. having it's a very, um, I don't know if I can make this make sense, but it's a very East Coast New York score. It's it's lots of pianos, and it reminds me of Dave Grusin, as, uh, the, the composer. It doesn't always have that big John Williams, California flourish and romanticism. It's it's a very pared down, I wouldn't say jazz, but it's it's just that sort of beautiful piano work throughout. And then obviously in the concerto at the end. Absolutely. There was a documentary on the movie that came out, and Spielberg was stating that a key issue raised by the movie itself is the extent to which we as human beings have a moral responsibility to the intelligent robots that we will someday create. And AI is definitely doing that. And I wanted to ask you guys, what kind of qualities would a robot need before we would recognize our moral responsibility towards it? Like when does a vacuum cleaner become something that we care about, right? <laughs> something uh, like that. Yeah. Well, if, if my floor needs doing, I always will care about the, the vacuum cleaner above everything else. But yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's what do we assign? What sort of value do we assign to, to something mechanis, you know, me mechanical? Um, I'm not going to get emotional about a sandwich maker or my kettle. Uh, but like you say, maybe, maybe we will in the future, you know, uh, we're very, I suppose we're very sentimental and attached to our, our, you know, our cell phones and our, our technology in that way. But we, we assume we're in control, that it's an add-on, that it's an app to what we want to do. But, you know, who's to say in 
a thousand years time it won't be it it won't be an app it won't be it'll be something a bit more i don't want to say controlling but a bit more dominant a bit more integrated with our own lives and um routines i think i mean actually the vacuum cleaner uh example is a good one because it's something that just appeals appears to be so sedate and functional but you know a lot of technology is always just sedate and functional and then until sci-fi takes it and you know spielberg did it himself in close encounters he turned a vacuum cleaner into some you know something of threat um so i think it's the answer there is possibly something with purpose and then pur purpose plus a lot a hell of a lot of technological time when i think about technology oftentimes i think if it has a face i'll probably care more about it than if it doesn't yeah and the super toy teddy comes to mind for me mm, mm, who i think mm. is just a fantastic addition to the story david needed a companion and what a great creative way to to give him that with another more less questionable sentient being <laughs> i mean we know that teddy's a super toy because he's a teddy bear so already he's a toy mm. that has some not emotional qualities but he has a face and he has the ability to tell david you're going to break if yeah. he starts eating the spinach yeah. and so he has a conscience and there were moments when I was watching AI when I was like, oh my gosh, I hope Teddy doesn't get destroyed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I'm yeah. thinking, why? Why? He is literally, he is a super toy. Like he is a recognizable teddy bear. But then I started thinking about stuffed animals that I had growing up that my five and a half year old has actually inherited. And I look at those and I was like, you know what? I remember connecting with those stuffed animals because of what they did for me in terms of giving me comfort and feeling safe. Yeah. But it's because they had faces to them. And like when I think about sentient beings being able to emote with their face, Aaron, you and I have talked about this on the show that Andy Serkis as an actor is mm. probably one of the best nonverbal actors out there because of his ability to emote mm. with his face and give you so much emotion from there. Mm. And I think it gets ratcheted up to 11 with David because one, he's a kid, two, he's crying. But those facial expressions that Haley Joe Osmond makes, you compare those again to the first act. And he is incredibly different when he has the the love characteristic attached to his programming mm, because mm. not just that there are tears, it's just the way his face expresses that sadness and that fear, especially mm. that moment when his, when his mom leaves him in the woods. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me with that? Mm, you're leaving a mm. child in the woods. That's what I was thinking. Not yeah. you're disposing a robot. You're leaving a child in the woods. And I'm just well, like, oh, that breaks my heart. It would be less cruel if she put him in a bowl of acid. All right, it'd be a little more horrific and it would kill the film after 45 minutes. But I, w I was thinking this when they're driving, when she's driving and then she slows down near the uh, sort of compound. And I'm like thinking, you could just kill him or turn him off or something, but just leaving him is so cruel. And it's, it's almost like the flip of E.T. where Elliot finds E.T. in the forest. And it's the, the flip of that where you know, uh, David is abandoned in the forest. And yeah, I, I, the, the Teddy character or the Teddy figure is, is so crucial to that film. He's the Jiminy Cricket to Pinocchio. He's the, he's the Teddy Ruxpin for the eighties kids. There's echoes of that. And he, he looks like Wilfred Brimley as well. That, uh, actor that's, that's no longer <laughs> with, I was sort of looking, he's got that, that curmudgeonly sort of mustache eyebrow thing going on. Um, uh, and a, and a really necessary, because there's actually more emotion and there's more 
Teddy obeys the rules more. He's he's more aware of the world around him and the adult way of thinking. So he's often a bit more cautious and a bit, I wouldn't say negative, but he's a bit more worldly wise. Uh, and that's, you know, David needs that. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with all of that. And especially the recognizable being one of the main factors uh, in our acceptance of an AI. And then I also think being able to see or acknowledge some form of free will uh, being utilized by an AI or robot is what would really push us as a, as a whole, a culture, as a society over the edge on morally accepting this is watching and seeing a robot go beyond its programming. Um, you know, this yeah. is the whole, whole thing. If you can, if you can shut them down with a sequence of five or six words, then they're not, it doesn't matter how much they look like us. Ultimately, we can know that they're controllable, but when they become mm. non-controllable fully, then we, we begin to have, you, you mix that with the recognizable piece and you really get something you can start mm. having compassion mm. for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I see there's that, the scene where David is walking, I guess, to his, to his own, like, not demise, but he's in essentially the manufacturing plant of all these Davids. And he sees these boxes that are all basically replicas of himself with that, that tagline on those boxes that says a last, a love of your own. And that was the big thing about David was not just that he was the first to be able to articulate, emulate, replicate, whatever the word is, the emotion of love, but that he was also the path that he took to get there was really more self-reliant. Like he was, he desired because of that love for his mother, he desired to get back to her in some way, shape or form. And there's this great, that great moment where he finds another version of himself reading a book you mm. know, prior to, I guess the love thing coming on and he destroys him. Mm. And in that moment mm. I'm thinking, why would you do that? What, what is it about that? that moment, why would you get that uber violent? And I think maybe Spielberg is meant to express that's the, that's the, I don't know the, what's the word I'm thinking of. That's the consequence of love is yeah. maybe the sense of I am, I crave to be close to this person. And I recognize that I recognize who I am. I am a robot and that this person or this being next to me is just like me. And therefore he's going to usurp. He's going to, put himself in my position. I have to take him out. And I don't know that I felt bad for David in that moment. I felt more like I understood what he was going through and what, and why he did what he did. So I, I sort of understood him, but at the same time, I was still, I was struggling with that moment with him. It's, I think it's, yes, it's him realizing I'm just one of many. And, you know, it, it, it reminded me of Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story as well, where he, he sees those, or the similar sort of reaction of, it's just literally pulling him down to earth with a horrible bang. Um, but I, I wonder if it's also with David, it's like almost a, um, it's a sibling rivalry issue. I, I, there's a great photo my, my cousin took of his two year old girl, um, where she's, she's walking along the street and she's just dropped her, her teddy bear on the ground and she has, and they got a photo of it. And it's the most concerned, but slightly evil stare of this child, two year old. Um, and the, the reality of the photo was that her mother just picked up a child that wasn't her and she'd never experienced that before. And they just happened to get a photo of it. 
And she went full on Omen Damien at, at that moment. And I, I wonder if that's, it's a dual thing. It's the duality of David realizing he is one of many, which is something that we, we get as kids. I'm an only child. So I had those moments in sort of different, different ways, I'm sure. Um, but when you get to uh, junior school and primary school, you really realize I am just one of many. And I think that's what's hitting David, but also that thing of, hang on, I love mummy, Monica. I, I'm here. For her and I'm why are you here already and I think that's also why he just flips out and you know bashes the other David to to bits well he it's a learned behavior right I mean this is this is how it works it's a cycle David experienced a sibling his first experience was a sibling who hated him for existing mm. and was jealous of him and acted out in violence and or in provocation and so I feel like David's just kind of mimicking and mirroring the behavior that he's seen uh, someone else exhibit in a similar situation. Mm, Yes, possibly, yeah. So what we see from that moment that I find very fascinating is that David doesn't lose his ability to find his mother, to become human, to get, to find a way in order to connect with his mom again. Because Mm. the journey was not about finding his mother. The, The journey was about finding the blue fairy who would turn him into a real boy. And so this is kind of going back into Mark, what you were saying, the, the fairy tale aspect of, of the movie. Mm. And so we get to this moment that I think is somewhat divisive. I think that's probably a tame way of saying it of why people don't necessarily respond to this movie like they would another. Um, obviously it's very important to have a solid ending. You got to stick the landing mm. and it's been, it's been argued that Kubrick's vision of AI ended with that pan out shot of David continuing to ask the blue fairy, make me human, make me Mm. human, make me a real boy credits roll, man, it's perfect. But then we get this return of the King ending where, wait, it's not over yet. No, it's not over yet. And we fast forward 2000 years later and we Mm. get this, almost like this epilogue of some, of sorts with a little miniature plot inserted into it. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, because I know that you're a, being a huge fan of this movie, how did that sit with you to have that sequence of events happening? Do you feel like it should have stopped in the water or do you feel like the 2000 year segment helped elevate what Kubrick and Spielberg were trying to accomplish? Well, it's, it's such a 21st century movie. It doesn't know how to end, which is a, a trait of so many movies. Um, no, no, I, I actually think that whole final sort of half hour, that last act is, is, is beautifully earned. It, in, in any other film, it could have felt like you say, an add on, uh, if, you know, it, you could argue that it's a, a collection of deleted scenes that should have been deleted. But I, I think there's a line where Ben Kingsley's character as this this sort of mecha robot from uh where is it sort of two thousand plus years time when he says you're you are only link human race day and you've you've got this character and I, I think the casting of Ben Kingsley is not didn't just happen either. There's that he's he brings that humanity that he does uh, to Shinder's list and that that blind faith in humanity and also the simplicity as well. This is what it is. And I, I love the Ben Kingsley's narration in that. And then when he becomes that older uh, mecha spindly droid talking with David in the bedroom, it's, a, it's, I just, I think it's an earned motif because you're, you're often wondering where's the film going? 
and and it's when we're told that David is the the last link to to humanity that he he is where future future worlds future universes will learn from so i think actually it's where the film comes full circle and it it would have been harsh and emotionally blunt to end end the film with um david sort of looking at uh you know this coney island uh blue fairy um but i i like it and also like it because it feels if you if you're looking at the film as a spielberg movie it has that it it feels immediately like an extension of close encounters of the third kind uh if you ever look at the the blu-ray of close encounters there's lots of deleted scenes and early special effects tryouts and one of the things they wanted to do was have the aliens sort of swoop in and communicate through these squares these sort of you know like um like sort of punctuation that would just spill out across the uh the landing strip in lines like sort of you know square dots and then suddenly in, a, in ai you have this square like vessel flying over the frozen tundra of you know the east coast and it, it i like those associations where make just in in our sort of fantasy spielberg extended universe that this is connected thematically it's connected it's, it's not connected narratively um so i again I, I don't have a problem with it. i just think it's a beautiful finale uh and makes sense to a film that you know it's it's, it's odd that the most plot in the whole of AI is in that last 20 minute sequence because it's it moves quite quick with uh, the narration by Ben Kingsley is very necessary to keep us up to speed. Whereas the film has been very sort of still and serene. And then we we have the Ben Kingsley really powering it forward. It gets that it's not, it doesn't just move forward in 2000 years. It moves forward in sort of 2000 story tangents almost. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm torn on it. I, I will admit I wanted very much to be in favor of this ending. And this is a very divisive ending. And the people that don't like AI will quickly tell you that the reason they don't like AI is because of the ending. What I found in this, this was my second viewing and I watched it for the first time like a year ago. So I was late to the party as well, Patrick. And Mm. I love, 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 love this movie up until we get to the blue fairy journey. And I, it's interesting for me because I don't dislike necessarily the way the film ends in that David is gifted this one shot at happiness. I feel like it actually is. It's it's almost somewhat tragic in a way because it shows our human desire for happiness and how important that is to us almost above all else. It's it's never necessarily about giving. It's, It's David needed to get this thing in order Mm. to feel complete and it's all about him getting it. Like in the end, that's what he needs. He has to get this thing. And so a part of me is empathetic and is compassionate and says, you know, David's gone through a lot and I want him to get this moment of love, but I also am torn because I know that it's false and I know that it is fleeting and it it is a, it's literally like choosing the, uh, the pill that, you know, takes you out of reality because you just want to believe this thing is true so badly. Um, for me, it's how we get from the blue fairy journey to the end. I, I lose a lot of track there. I think it's not made in the best way possible. I think Spielberg gets a little too complicated and a little too wacky, a little too far stretched in this period of time. And that's what doesn't work as well for me. 
Um, his robots resemble aliens. So initially there's a jarringness to that. And you kind of are trying to figure out what the heck's going on. You don't immediately think these mm. are evolved robots. I mean, at least I didn't. They look like aliens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, mm. and then eventually, you know, you realize it. The narration is there. So it, it's definitely a, a hit and miss ending. I don't hate it, but it certainly is a downturn for me overall from where the film was up until then. And I do want to add, though, Patrick, because so many folks say this, but Spook Kubrick would have ended it at David, you know, in the morose, dark way of David just forever sitting at the bottom of the ocean, (laughs) wishing that he was a real boy. Spielberg has come on record and very specifically stated that in Kubrick's treatment, that was not how it ended. Kubrick wanted this film to go on. Kubrick would have been completely on board with this. And, you know, Kubrick chose to have Spielberg direct this vision for a reason. Kubrick knew that there were pieces of the story that were not going to align with his particular past sensibilities in the way that he created film. Like he needed a Spielberg emotionality and compassion to bring to this story. So I, I hate that. I hate that argument. I know you're not making it, Patrick, but you're you're bringing up that it is a very common one. And I just dislike anytime we project Kubrick was not alive when this film came out, period. Like we don't know. No one can know. All we can know is that Kubrick chose Spielberg and that in Kubrick's initial drafts and initial, you know, conversations about this film, he was on board with this type of ending. So based on that, I think that this collaboration, I think it was the right choice, even if it didn't necessarily work as well for me personally. Yes. Yeah, I would yeah. agree. I, I I would say that I agree with you, Aaron. I think the 2000 year jump was a little bit too much for me in terms of like, okay, what's happened? I, I get that what Spielberg is doing is saying, Hey, look, we're completely detached from all humanity. And we have to have it explained to us that these aliens are not aliens. They're actually just advanced versions of the Mechas. Mm. What I like about it though, is that there's that beautiful irony that exists in the fact that Ben Ben Kingsley is asking for human connection from a sentient being that is not human. Mm. And so, I mean, that's a little on the nose, I would probably admit. And I think that it could have been done a little bit more subtly. But I like the fact that David does get that one last moment with his his mom. And yes, Mm. it is like taking the blue pill or the red pill, whichever one (laughs) keeps you in the matrix. But we're dealing with a non-living creature, a non-human that's trying to connect with essentially hair follicles, you know, a DNA version of his mom. And I think more than anything, I think it adds, it's a nice reprieve. I think it's a nice kind of accent to the movie as opposed, as opposed to, as opposed to be, as opposed to being something else. And Mm -hmm. while I do think it felt different than ending it where we quote think it should have ended or the Kubrick ending. You're right. Spielberg has said, this is what it was supposed to be. And, and Mark, you alluded to it earlier. We talked about it. The fact that Steven Spielberg's style is not what we expected it to be, that Mm. the Kubrick moments were the ones that we thought would be Spielberg moments and vice versa. So why shouldn't the ending be that way as well? So I didn't mind it. I thought it was somewhat jarring, but, but I didn't think it deflated the movie. I think one of the, things about AI and the way it ends. And I, I get the point you've just made. It remind it does remind me of 2001 uh, and perhaps, you know, some of his other 
later films where it, it asks more questions. It, it poses more conundrums than it's wanting to uh, answer. Where and, and if you've got that sort of 2001 odyssey vagueness to it, but in the hands of Spielberg, he will want to just try and bring it back to some narrative starting point. And I think that's possibly what was going on there in, a, in a, whatever defence I can give off the scene. I do, under, I do get the, the sort of the uh, discussions of that final act. And I, I would have had no problem if it just ended with him constantly looking at the Blue Fairy, I, I, especially in 2001, you know, which became quite a downbeat chapter in, you know, in, in the human timeline. I don't think that film would have, it could have worked better had it ended like that. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that. Well, um, we wanted to move into an interview, if you don't mind. Um, this has been an awesome conversation and gosh, it, it's so cool sometimes to be able to bring on somebody that has a great knowledge in an area like this, like you do. I mean, you've studied Spielberg more than the both of us have probably put together. Uh, so you bring a really cool element for in that regard that we would not have normally had. Um, so yeah, we appreciate uh, everything that you brought to that conversation for sure. No, I, and I appreciate actually just being able to take one film of his and, and really pull it apart, you know, pull it apart and remake it like a mecca. We, we sort of, we flesh fed AI. We've pulled it apart to look at it a bit here, but I, I appreciate that. I appreciated the chat here. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move into, um, wanting to talk about your, your new book. Um, hmm. absolutely. And, um, I wanted to start out by asking you in, in reading your bio and checking a little bit more about you, you've definitely written for a lot of different formats. I know that mm. you've done some reviews here and there. You've got these two books and I, I wondered, were any of those formats or any of those formats, do they stand out as appealing or cha more challenging than others? Um, oh, I'm going to give a real writer's response and say there it's all challenging. And, and that is true. You know, if I writing, uh, I've done a lot of comedy and if I'm writing, a very short sketch that has to last 30 seconds. It can have as many pitfalls and cliches that I have to avoid as you would get writing a full length feature screenplay or a, you know, 400 page book. Um, so the, the, this, you know, the challenge is always different, but it's, I always think writing is often about rhythms and detail and how much you use, you know, don't have too much rhythm. Don't put too much detail. And that, that can apply to whether you're writing a 30 second, gag for a comedian or a, as I say, a 300 page book about Star Wars. Right. Well, this being a, a memoir, um, watching skies is the second book that you've written. The first mm -hmm. being catching bullets that came out, I think in 2009. And I think it's described as also a sort of memoir, although of a different subject. Yeah. How, how do these things, both of these books, how are they, how are they similar to each other as memoirs and, um, how are they, how are they different from one another? Yeah, no, it's, that's a fair question. Um, uh, I was, I mean, they are two sides of a childhood coin. They are two sides of being a movie fan. Um, Catching Bullets is a very personal story. It's a memoir of being a fan of a franchise, uh, in this case, the James Bond movies. And my grandfather had links to the, to the Broccoli families. Uh, he worked for them for many, many decades. So that Bond was always in my family and it felt perhaps more of a natural uh, progression to do a book on it. Um, so, so Catching Bullets, the Bond book, is a memoir of being a fan. One that a lot of people have recognised and come to me and said, oh, I've done that, I thought that, or I didn't do that, or I didn't think that. But uh, Watching Skies, the new book, it's, uh, it's, it's also a memoir through cinema, but it's looking at how those films changed 
our childhoods and affected our childhoods and also how they how those films changed cinema you know how did et and star wars and jaws what do they we all know they're great we all know they're key grammar in the sort of history of movie of the movie timeline but but why so that's what i wanted to look at there and then and when you do that it makes it more universal i've had a lot of people coming to me uh with watching skies saying you know this this feels like my child and this is people you know who didn't have the british childhood that i had so they're they're sort of to not answer your question at all they're like a prequel sequel to each other um the the Bond book goes starts in the eighties and comes up to up to date, whereas the uh, Watching Skies it it, it starts in seventy five and ends in eighty four eighty five, but then looks at the how those movie incarnations Force Awakens, Man of Steel, Ghostbusters how they continued. Before we get off Watching Skies completely, I wanted to ask you specifically, who should read your book? What what kind of person out there listening to our podcast right now? Clearly, it's someone who's seen AI. Most likely. So, um, what is the what is the ideal target for your novel? Um, well, I I try not to make it too specific to age, but it is people that are aware of the seventies and eighties American new wave of cinema, Jaws, Close Encounters, Star Wars. Um, but you don't have to be around at that time. I I actually I was barely two years old when A New Hope hit hit movie theaters, so I'm I'm slightly behind that generation. I I didn't queue up as a as a nine-year-old with you know heavy big spielberg mop of hair I, I, outside the groundman's i that, that wasn't my story so I, I was the first time i saw a star wars movie was in 83 jedi at my local movie house so i i i would say a lot of people that are into movies and american cinema and people that recognize uh the, the, the sort of the sense of um domesticity and Americana of those, of those early Spielberg films alongside the utter fantasy and kinetic adventure of Superman, Star Wars, uh, E.T. Right. I wanted to ask a kind of candid, two, two candid questions. One, yeah. and this That's may spoil, this may spoil catching bullets. Did you have a favorite bond or ha- do you have a favorite bond, uh, actor? Uh, or would, well, that spoil, would that spoil yeah, the book? It's, it's not going to spoil it. If you look at anything into, uh, Catching Bullets, you'll understand that my favourite James Bond was Roger Moore. He was the one that I was born into, the one that I heard the most through my uh, grandfather who was working on the movies. His And yeah, and Roger Moore was everywhere. So he was my Bond. I always say that Sean Connery and the others were like my step Bonds. They were the ones that came afterwards that I, I still respect. But, and I still know they're part of the family. But Roger Moore, first and foremost. But like I say, I've got a favourite Bond film, which I won't say because I like I like to tease people with that because it's quite quite an extreme favourite. Uh, but I will say that the best Bond film is on A Majesty's Secret Service. And likewise, I would say that the best Bond actor uh, is whoever we have now. So I, I think the best Bond actor yet is Daniel Craig. But my favourite is Roger Moore. Love it. Love it. Very cool. Very cool. That's well, a real getting back. That's- that's sorry. That's a real writer PR question. But it's true, though. That I think we we all do this. We we suddenly realised as fans that we could we had we can have a favourite and a best, which can help us split our allegiances. Yeah, we talk in in our Facebook group about masterpieces and how you would define that. And then when you get into top ten lists or top one hundreds that we're all trying to put together, how do you define your top one hundred? Is it your favourites or is it the best? And one might be more objective or subjective than the other. And so it's very it's very ambiguous, which I think is what makes the art form of movies so great is that you can Absolutely. have those kinds of conversations, disagree mm-hmm. with someone else, 
and at the end of the day, leave the conversation knowing that you both appreciate the art itself equally as much as the other person. Yeah, sometimes a, a, a glass of Bollinger champagne is what we want, but sometimes just a slightly warm beer is, is okay too. Yeah, absolutely. So with regards to to watching skies, I, I was talking to Aaron about this earlier, and I haven't gotten your book yet. I'm, I'm anxious to read it. I'm in the middle of uh, the Steve Jobs biography. Oh, wow. And uh, I want to finish that before before I dive in to, they're, to they're yours. Very similar, was... They're very similar stories, if truth be told. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Really? Okay. Well, no, no, be no, nice, no. Be no, no I haven't invented anything. <laughs> I didn't invent anything. I don't think I did anyway. No. <laughs> the Apple computer was around when you were experiencing all this. So I guess that's the connection, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I was more no, no, um, I was more Tommy. That was my that was as far as I got in technology as a kid. Oh, okay, so I was watching uh, as a designer. I was I was looking at your book, your book cover, and mm. I don't know if, of course, I don't know how things work on on websites like Amazon. But I noticed when I when I looked at it in detail, to just to catch some of the details. I noticed that it looked like a tattered 80s poster mm -hmm. and maybe that was that intentional or am I just seeing that weird? No, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I okay. really lucked out. I, a guy called Scott Walston did the poster and he's a professional designer and graphic artist and he does real movie posters that some of us know. Um, and he, he, he actually got the project and I was very keen on, uh, Motif of yellow road lines because that's to me that always signals I'm back in America where I see the yellow road lines. I know that's really mundane, but and then I and mm -hmm. there's uh, I'll say that the opening line of the book is the uh, the yellow road lines of the Pacific Coast Highway stretch into the horizon like the opening crawl of a Star Wars movie. So that that yellow and those yellow lines had to be there. And Scott, the designer, I, I said to him early on, I said I want it to look like a tattered video, you know, VHS sleeve or a poster that had been on a bedroom wall for too long and moved around. Um, and sometimes, you know, publishers don't want to have books that look old and secondhand. Uh, but he got a really, he, he got, he got it right. And I, yeah, so you, you're, you're very right and very astute to notice that those, those folds and that slightly dated way of printing and that John Alvin era of, of movie posters, that was definitely a, a plan. It's fantastic. I, I thought it was just a very smart doing that. So with regards to your writing, is there something about your writing process that you consider kind of your, your kryptonite to use a Superman reference, something that you feel like, oh, this always happens or when this does, I feel like I'm going to just not be able to produce what I want to? The, I, yeah, the only kryptonite I think I have as a writer is is the internet <laughs> that is the thing that just pull, pulls me back so i i will go and check you know when, did that film come out in 1972 i better check that and then i'm on uh wikipedia and i'm checking things and then suddenly i'm off on an odyssey and i'm i'm watching trailers for wreck it ralph 2 and so the only thing that actually pulls me back like the sort of kryptonite around the neck is the internet um and what what helps with that is things like deadlines when people are interested and want to see the work and, you know, or, or are printing or publishing it. That always spurs you on to, to get through that, those sort of pitfalls of working at home. That's awesome. I, you know, deadlines actually are a big thing for us too. That, that keeps us going because it, it keeps us on schedule and we may put off watching a movie and, and getting a conversation prepped for, for a long, long time. But uh, mm. if we have that deadline, it, you know, we've got to get it done because people want it. So that yeah, makes perfect it, sense. Um, yeah, go ahead. 
No, and if you hit, you know, write, writer's block, I don't think writer's block exists. It just means you haven't done your research. And what I, if I, <laughs> if I, if I feel I haven't, I've got a stumbling block or that scene or that paragraph isn't quite working. Do you know what I'll do? I will go to the movies or I will put on something at home and I, I won't steal an idea. You know, if I'm, if I'm watching, you know, an episode of Maniac or American Horror Story, it won't, it's not what I'm writing right now, but just that, change of scene it'll just trigger something so it's a you know it's great just to go back to the movies and, and that's always been my anti-kryptonite to just to to work through an idea and just just see how how someone else did that idea it doesn't have to be connected in genre at all that's awesome well what got you into this business slash creative endeavor in the first place like what did what made you want to become a writer i well you know i'm a movie kid like we all are listening to this right now and I I wanted to be in the movies I wanted to work on a film set and I wanted to be a, a film director and then you realize that actually if you're gonna be a film director you've got to have a camera okay and you've got to have some people and maybe some tape and then suddenly you see all these things that uh, you need to have in order to do it that rely on other people and other possessions uh, and then I thought well, I'll be a stuntman and in Britain I don't know if it's the same in the states but in Britain you have to have seven disciplines trampolining parachuting horse riding and i'm not perhaps the most sporty of people so suddenly i thought mm, can't do that either and then i realized writing i always enjoyed doing essays for school creative writing i, I always did you know the longest essay probably should have been edited down but I, I just enjoyed that flow of just getting it out literally pen on paper in those days and just doing a school essay and i realized that Ah, films are written as well, and you don't have to necessarily have a cast of actors or a set or a camera or some videotape or, or a spare reel of film to write. You can just write anywhere. So that I sort of fell into it that way. It was sort of lack of necessity or lack of ingredients. Um, and then I, when I was 18, I saw a, a Channel 4, which was one of our big TV stations over in the UK, uh, were, uh, were running at the time a new writer scheme for uh, sort of kids and young adults. And I just put a script in there and it it got picked up and it you know big names the coen brothers picked it to be made plus a few others they were they were on the judging panel and um i i was able to see one of my films being made and broadcast uh it was up against temple of doom in the schedules as well which i love obviously temple of doom won but i love the fact that i was uh challenging spielberg in the british tv schedules and so yeah so that's where it started and then you often get told as a writer, write what no one else is doing. So eventually I, I was toying with doing a Bond book and I thought, well, I've got to write a Bond book that no one else will ever do. And I think that's what I did. Uh, and, and, and then that has led on to other things, including book two, which is now Watching Skies. Very cool. Well, a couple more questions and we'll, and we'll finish up. First of all, do you have a favorite fiction and or nonfiction read that you would say, that's my go-to, I'll read it multiple times, or you'd recommend it to anybody? Um, I one of my favorite fictional books is To Kill a Mockingbird. We read it at school and I just loved its sense of of time, its sense of character, its sense of politics and we also watched the movie alongside it and it was the, it was one of the few times in my life ever where the novel and the film are actually so aligned together. They they you know the the book came first obviously, but um I I yeah, so To Kill a Mockingbird and also Cannery Row as well. I just like those sort of slithers of America, Americana and American history. Um, I'm not a big fiction reader. I should read a lot more than I do, but I sort of read all my own stuff when I'm writing it, if that makes sense. So the, sometimes the last thing I want to do is read. And my 
my favorite non-fiction book is um I always say this, it's a random one, which, and it's a really old book. Um, when I was a Bond fan, well, when I was 10 years old and becoming a, a movie and Bond fan, there was a book by a British journalist and producer called Sally Hibben, and it was called The Official, uh, the Official James Bond 007 Movie Book, and it was the first time I had a book that had so many stills and details and stats. So I always go back to that as being my favourite non-fiction book. I've, I own and have read a lot, you know, grander better books but it was that first one that i owned that's always sticks in the mind that's awesome that's a, that's a great kind of answer to the, that question and, and it's definitely something i'd never heard of i like hearing recommendations uh, that i've never would have come up with on my own so um, yeah i could have said i could have said the rins the star wars books they're magnificent and all the other books i'm looking at on my shelf right now um but no that was <laughs> the one that that first sort of got me into get, got me into the idea that movies are made in fact going back to that how did I become a writer? I remember seeing that in those stats books about Bond in the 80s, they would have written by. And I'm like, oh, written by? I hadn't thought that you, you know, writers do a film. You just assume it's actors and directors and explosions, but it, it isn't. That's great. Well, we like to ask every guest and every uh, person that we have the opportunity to talk to this question because we are feeling film. And so what is one movie that you have connected with on some sort of deep emotional level, what comes to mind that you would recommend for our listeners is something that was particularly powerful for you emotionally? Ooh, ooh. Um, I'm going to say a random one, and it's actually one of my favorite movies. Uh, and it's, it was 25 years old recently as well. It's Days Confused, the Richard Linklater movie. Uh, obviously, I came late to it. it I, I just... I love the, the the 70s and Americana of it, but it's it's got a real underlying thread of just friendship and that that sense of last summer. So I, I always go back to Days Confused, which is never the answer anyone expects, but it's the one I always give. Awesome. Well, that is a fantastic answer. We're big Linkletter fans too here, so um, mm. I can't can't go wrong with that. We actually covered um, American Graffiti on our Connecting with Classics uh, a few months mm. ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, a good experience for me. It was the first time I'd seen that. I, I typically don't dive into the seventies films as much as, as some others. So um, I don't even know if I've seen Dazed and confused in my adult life. I might need to revisit that. I, I haven't seen it for a long time. I, I saw a documentary about it recently, but I haven't watched the whole film in its entirety, but it's, I remember I was about, I was about that age as well when I saw it first time. So it was that idea of leaving school, becoming an adult or going, either having to find a job or go to university it was all very sort of apt for me at the time plus it's got that great soundtrack and um and it was a side of america as well that wasn't just the sort of midwest obviously it's set you know in and around austin but it 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 didn't it didn't overdo its americano it's not it's not about yellow school buses and coke cans and donuts it's it's about you know aerosmith and all the, the sort of a different era of pop culture which i was about to go into as a sort of student as well. So that's, that's why I always say that one. It's one of my favorites for sure. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on. Uh, we appreciate you being part of the conversation for AI, as well as uh, giving us insight into your, uh, your writing world and the new book that has, uh, has just come out. If you guys want to check it out, you can check it out on Amazon. I'm sure it's available at other booksellers um, all over the place, but yeah, it's called Watching Skies, Star Wars, Spielberg, and Us. And I'm excited to read it here in about uh, maybe, well, just 
three weeks, two weeks, depending on when I can knock out this biography. But we appreciate you coming on and, and talking about it. And if you guys get a chance to read it, please no, do. I, I appreciate the conversation as well, guys. One of the great things about when you do something like this is you get to speak to like-minded movie minds across the globe. You know, technology allows us to talk to everyone. So I really appreciate you just chatting with you guys and you know, about AI, but also other things. Well, all right. Thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, stay positive and keep feeling film. 